I'm Imogen Ray Smith. I'm David Bank. I'm Brian Walsh. And this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. On today's show, wither climate action. Political leadership seems to be in short supply. The failure of the COP25 Global Climate Conference in Madrid, that's the United Nations-backed gathering for policymakers, NGOs, and other stakeholders to work out the global response to climate change, signaled an inability for political actors to decide on a clear path forward to reduce carbon emissions and meaningfully reduce the risk of catastrophic climate change. Yet, the climate emergency is real, and the financial casualties are piling up. Those kind of risks now toss climate action into the lap of the capital markets. And, spoiler alert, the decapitalization of the fossil fuel industry has already begun. Imogen, what are the implications for the capital markets now that the political leaders have signaled they're not planning on taking concrete action? Well, you know, on a sort of very fundamental level, it's not good, right? So, you know, there has long been this expectation on the part of capital markets that regulation will happen and that then they will respond and trade accordingly, right? So the obvious one is carbon tax credits and creating a market for carbon. And there's sort of been this waiting game of what is that going to look like and then how will investors respond? Similarly, you know, sort of various incentives to address, you know, certain climate issues or create renewable markets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of those require and need capital, and the capital markets will step up and do that when the political landscape exists. And so without that, you know, in a, in a very real way, the capital markets aren't going to do it on their own. That said, reality is catching up with the world of finance, right? We are seeing the economic implications of climate change. The obvious example is the PG&E bankruptcy. Right. And so there is uh, increasing recognition on the part of investors that there are real material risks associated with climate change and its impact, especially sort of extreme weather scenarios. And so they're not going to wait around for lawmakers to come to any agreement before they act. And it's worth noting that sort of in the same time period that we're talking about COP25 being a bust, Saudi Arabia did its Saudi Aramco IPO. And on the one hand, you know, you've seen all of the major banks sort of rushing to get a part of that deal. And on the other hand, there was a lack of interest on the part of universal investors. And that is for a variety of reasons, um, not the least of which is concerns about the Saudi government, but also concerns about fossil fuels. On the one hand, you're seeing investors get squeamish about certain fossil fuels. But on the other hand, it's sort of business as usual for Wall Street. Similarly, you know, Goldman Sachs announced that it was no longer going to finance drilling for oil in the Arctic, which is not an insignificant announcement. And they also announced that they're going to do various renewable investments. So you're, you're seeing, you know, and you could say, well, that's a drop in the ocean relative, no pun intended, relative to sort of what Goldman's doing to sort of finance fossil fuels and bad things across the board. And that's a very legitimate criticism. But it's not nothing. And there has been a broad recognition over the past five years by both the major investment banks and the asset allocators that climate change is real and that they need to do something. I think the problem is absent political pressure, some, if not all of that, is 
you know, window dressing. So, David, is this all just window dressing? And are, are the capital markets equipped to step into this void left by politicians? Well, equipped to step into the void? No, but equipped? Absolutely. I mean, I, I would say that everybody is like loaded for bear was in terms of financing. Folks were ready to roll, basically, or are ready to roll as, as soon as there is political leadership, as, as Imogen said. And, you know, the Goldman announcement may be an example of that. I'm sure they had that planned long before, you know, they knew that COP was going to um, implode in the way that it did it, it towards the end without, you know, the kind of leadership that would set a direction and signal to the markets that there was going to be significant, you know, climate action and uh, at a policy level. And so, as Imogen said, you know, bankers will do what bankers do, but they're happy to finance solar farms and wind farms and storage yards and whatnot, and as much as, as oil drilling. And so um, as soon as the everybody gets aligned in the, in the right direction, I think things could move quite fast. I mean, renewable energy in the last 10 years has sort of blown through all, all previous projections. But, you know, it's got to get things got to get lined up in the right way for the capital markets to be able to do their work. So um, headwinds from from political leadership is not helpful. I mean, one of the things that strikes, really strikes me about the Goldman Sachs announcement is that, you know, there, there's long been a history of Goldman Sachs leadership caring about climate change. Um, sort of Hank Paulson is very involved with this issue. Um, Bob Littman, who was the head of risk at Goldman and GSAM, you know, is sort of the, the leading spokesperson on climate risk. Um, and Lloyd Blankfein was also known to be interested in these issues. Nobody thinks about David Solomon, the current CEO, as being, you know, a tree-hugging hippie, right? He's known for being DJ David Sol and like, you know, DJing in the Hamptons. And so in the past, there have been people within Goldman who have thought about this and been sort of, but it's, it's been more philanthropic or reputational than anything else. This is, you know, this is something different. This is you know, it's not the biggest check in the world, but it is to a certain extent Goldman putting its money where its mouth is. And I think that the you know the declaration that they're not going to finance drilling in the Arctic is a big deal, especially at a time when you still have like you know BP petitioning the U.S. government to open up, up Alaska. Like, I, I, I don't I don't want to be you know David on this. I, I think that there's a long way to go, but this does feel more significant than some of the announce the past announcements the banks have made. Well, I think there is a, a, a race on, as you say, to, you know, maybe it is to, to make announcements, but the banks want to position themselves and the asset managers want to position themselves. And you 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 said it earlier when you said the universal owners are not did not flock to the Saudi Aramco IPO. The largest pension funds, sovereign funds, you know, the Norwegians, um, the government pension investment fund in, in Japan, the, the, the largest funds are thinking universal at like universal owners and they're thinking in longer time horizons and they're seeing this risk and they understand that in fact a two or three or four degree world is not good for their portfolios and so um the goldman sachs of the world who manage all that money the black rocks they're going to have to start to scramble to show that they're making a a solid effort to mitigate that risk and so there's kind of a race on to to get more aggressive if all, and again, if only there was, you know, yet political leadership, I think that would be a land, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, an avalanche. To be clear, there is a political leadership. It's just not happening at the COP. And, you know, I think U.S. Be, being absent from that discussion has been a, a very unfortunate game changer. And, and well, U.S. being absent from the conversation at COP also 
uh, opens the, the door to Russia and Saudi Arabia and Brazil and some of these other kind of climate skeptics to uh, muck, muck things up at, at COP. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, there is still there is still things happening. You know, I mean, I think the task force for financial disclosure is a big and going to be bigger deal. And the EU is doing a bunch of things, particularly around financial regulation and ESG. And, you know, because obviously, you know, banks are universal. If the EU does something, banks are going to have to do it across the board. They, they can't really sort of just carve out what they're doing in Europe and say, well, we're not going to care about, we're not going to sort of substantially, sub substantively support ESG throughout our investment portfolio. We're just going to do it when we're in Europe. I was thinking you. I was thinking you, you tempted to say you know you're in trouble when Imogen is more optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> well, but but to 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 kind of bring the cynical uh, uh, argument in, into play here, it, it's great that we have uh, some banks um, like Goldman saying that they're not going to finance some things like uh, drilling in in the Arctic uh, uh, National uh, Wildlife Refuge, but. Or not, they're not going to finance that anyways, but they're still going to finance and continue to finance fossil fuel uh, industries at a large scale. So what would change the dynamics here and the incentives here to reorient the capital markets to decapitalize the fossil fuel industry? How do we make it uh, a higher cost for uh, actors in the capital markets to provide capital and financing to the fossil fuel industry more so than it would be for them to not finance them? I mean, the obvious answer is money, right? Like, and so you've seen banks be willing to say, we're not going to capitalize the coal industry any longer because the coal industry is basically going bankrupt, right? So when it no longer makes economic sense to do something, they're very willing to step back and say no. But I think there is, you know, I've long been and I've, I've long thought that there is an opportunity for activists to do more around pressuring asset owners and their relationship to the banking industry, encouraging them to put pressure on their banks, both as investors and also customers to stop financing you know, the fossil fuel industry and sort of the infrastructure that supports it. And I think that you're starting to see that happen now, but that campaign has been kind of a, a slow burn. A, a slow burn, exactly. I do think that you're right, Imogen, that the sort of focus of activism will shift from the divestment movement, which has been, you know, relatively successful, but it's on the shareholder side and on the on the corporate side. And it's going to shift, like you say, to banking itself, which is financing the, the projects, the the pipelines and the dr drilling rigs and the and, and the rest of it. And that that is going to be the front lines. And in fact, I think even though it's not, you know, maybe the the largest lever and, and, and there's a, a symbolic element to it, that, but that even retail banking customers, um, I think there'll be a big push on in this coming year to um, make it a, you know, a, a point of pride to get your, uh, even your checking account and your savings account out of, out of the big funders of um, the big financers of fossil fuel. Well, and I think that is, I mean, don't, don't, uh, again, yeah, I'm being, I'm being the optimist today, right? Like, don't underestimate the power of that lever in that, like, it is, and that's an activist campaign, right? Like I, as a consumer, can feel like I'm doing something. Like maybe I can't change my 401k, right? But I can change my bank account. 
And so I can feel like I'm doing something. And then it does obviously have a PR impact for these banks. The challenge obviously is, you know, for the major, you're not going to get the major institutional investors to start banking with only with banks that don't support the fossil fuel industry because they're too big and the major banks all to some extent support the fossil fuel industry, right? And we're not all going to bank with the French banks anytime soon. In the spirit of, uh, you know, news you can use for our listeners, um, there is a Rainforest Action Network uh, uh, annual report called Banking on Climate Change, and it will tell you which banks have uh, uh, financed the most uh, fossil fuel projects by by year and whatnot. And the top four are J.P. Morgan, Chase, Wells Fargo, Citi, and, and Bank of America. So um, uh, act accordingly. So so that's that's the lever that people can, can put pressure on these banks, because these banks are... are are full of smart people and they are rational actors and they will respond to incentives. And right now their incentive is to make money on behalf of their shareholders by continuing to finance the fossil fuel industry. And so in the, in the absence of political uh, leverage and political leadership that would put in place regulations to make it hard or difficult or impossible for the fossil fuel industry to be in existence, uh, let alone be financed by uh, major banks. Um, the the next lever is to uh, try to put pressure by organizing people who, and institutions and organizations that bank with these institutions. Say we're not going to give our money to you to manage. We're not going to bank with you until you stop banking uh, with these fossil fuel uh, companies. And that the only way we're going to get to that tipping point is if they the the banks will see that. They have more to gain or less to lose by cutting off the money they earn from financing fossil fuel to uh, to to be in response to that demand from from their. There are other. Yeah. And, you know. Oh, I was just going to say there are other levers as well. For example, the insurance industry has been, you know, taking the lead in trying to actually assess and and underwrite the risks of, of climate change, and a lot of. Uh, underwriting criteria are being revised, you know, sort of as we speak. Uh, people, you know, who didn't think about wildfire risk are now, of course, having to to understand wildfire risk and, and the like. Um, so there are other levers that make projects unbankable, like not inability to get insurance. So there, there's, it's, it's. I think you're right, Brian, but I think there's sort of it's a multi-front attack. But, you know, I think you also obviously need to be realistic as to how effective these efforts are going to be absent political leadership, right? Banks are still making a lot of money from financing the fossil fuels industry, and they don't, they're not, they, they can take a level of sort of like, you know, Citibank can, can take being, you know, number, whatever it is, well, three on the Rainforest Coalition ranking, right? Because they're still making a lot of money, and to be clear, the individual bankers are still making a lot of money, and you know they are incentivized to do their job. And you know, there's a notorious phrase in finance like "IBG, YBG," right? I'll be gone, you'll be gone. People aren't thinking and are not incentivized to think about the long-term time horizon when you know the sort of I'm really mixing my metaphors today. The fossil fuel chickens come home to roost, right? Like they're not keeping this stuff in their books for the most part. And the people making the money aren't necessarily going to be here in whatever you want to say, like five years. So 
it's very hard to, you know, there's a lot of similarities, obviously, with the subprime mortgage crisis and the incentive to keep making money as long as there was money to be made. And it's, you kind of can't ask an investment bank, or it tends not to go very well, to ask one of these banks to leave money on the table. Right. And this is, as, as I've quoted before, the famous Chuck Prince, former CEO of Citigroup during the financial crisis, uh, explained why they were participating in the uh, subprime mortgage market, because uh, they said, as long as the music is playing, you've got to get up and dance. So as long as there's money to be made by financing the fossil fuel industry, banks will do it. We can just expect that. My question is, as another lever that uh, I haven't seen being pulled or engaged in this, we're talking about the absence of political leadership for regulations, absence of a coordinated kind of movement among institutions or individuals to move their their banking relationships with banks that do get engaged in fossil fuel. Uh, the other lever that David just mentioned, but what about uh, employees of these banks uh, organizing to put pressure on them to move away from those kinds of businesses? Because if you saw uh, with some of the tech companies, uh, Google in particular, there's a lot of employee engagement to have Google uh, not do business with certain uh, defense um, industry companies that, that they saw being against their own personal uh, morals and values. And Amazon employees did the same, and I think some Microsoft employees did the same. Um, so they're putting pressure among employees at big tech to say that, you know, we don't want our company that we are employees of to be making money in these industries that we find morally problematic. And do you see that or do you see the potential for those kinds of uh, coordinated efforts to happen from employees within these major financial institutions? Yeah, I, good luck I, with that. <laughs> well, I was gonna say I was gonna say something of, of similar, but I was gonna try to put a my my usual uh, more positive spin on it, which I don't think that will happen. But I do think that when these banks or or fi other financial institutions do spin up their sustainable finance group or their their impact investing initiative, they are deluged with resumes internally from folks who want to get on that, and that um, that as they uh, see the potential in this, that there is a, a level at which they get you know you know better employee morale and retention and recruitment of, of, of young MBAs and and whatnot. So there is there is an employee aspect to this. The other employee aspect to this, I think, is is their own statements at the top. So there's a bottom up, as you say, but there's also a top down. And so, for example, Jamie Dimon uh, of, of J.P. Morgan Chase happens to be the chair of the Business Roundtable. Uh, which, as listeners of this podcast know, helped 180 or so CEOs issue a statement in the summer declaring their corporate purpose, one of which, you know, was had to do with sustainability. They didn't mention, uh, you know, climate change, I think, directly or, or fossil fuels financing, certainly. But they did put, you know, the CEOs on record as being in generally in favor of sustainability and, and community relations and employee relations and customer relations. So they do um, show that they're attuned to those things, as, as Imogen said. And so, um, you know, the leadership is on record. You know, it's coming up from below. The, ki the kids are in the street. You know, there is, the, again, the table is set for, for, for leadership here. But, I mean, I think, I think we've, we've, we've debated this before. I, th I agree with you that I think all of the banks recognize that, you know, to, to, to recruit the best and the brightest, you know, particularly sort of millennials, that impact investing, caring about ESG, all of these things are going, going to matter. And, you know, the fossil fuel industry is concerned about, about how they attract and retain, retain talent. So, yes, I, I think 
that that is meaningful, but I don't think, you know, they can go and like hire a bunch of starry-eyed millennials in their private wealth groups and hope to God that that means that like, you know, the inheriting generation won't fire their Goldman Sachs investment banker, right? But that's not going to stop them. There's still an army of people out there, you know, who want to work on the fossil fuel desk, right? It's not going to, it's not going to change that. And look, I think there's a serious concern that these sort of rosy statements by leadership, you know, are impact washing, right? That Jamie Dimon might come out and say one thing, but the reality is, is the bank is still making a ton of money doing things that are not impact or ESG friendly. And so, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's good that they're set. And you can, again, you can say the same thing about the allocators, right? There's a lot of thought leadership going on. How much investment is actually happening? You know, and to, to sort of bring this conversation full circle, I think one of the, one of the real disappointing things about the absence of political leadership is that it reduces the opportunity for investing in the clean energy transition, right? So lacking sort of not creating the market, not creating as many incentives to finance things like, you know, renewable energy projects limits the desire of allocators and investment managers to put capital to work in those places and continues the sort of, you know, the subsidy of the fossil fuel industry. And it continues to make, and the problem is, is those, those investments are still profitable. And that's why people are still making them. Because the music is still playing. Exactly. And, you know, while we all pretend that, you know, we're long-term allocators, we're not. We're judged on a quarterly or annual basis. And so we, people will make decisions accordingly. David, give us a dose of optimism for us to close out this show. Well, I was actually kind of taken with Imogen's, um, you know, pessimism. I do think that there's a, a self-correction eventually, and that is that it is better, like I said earlier, it is better for everybody's portfolio. It's better for their loan portfolio. It's better for, you know, all kinds of asset values for the world to hold the line on, on catastrophic climate change. Catastrophic climate change is bad for business. You know, climate protesters in the street, they're good for business. And so you have to believe that um, the business world, for its own reasons, is going to try to say we can't head off the cliff. So I know that's, you know, um, uh, uh, vague. I know that we're actually still heading towards the cliff. I don't want to overstate that. Um, but, uh, you know, the leadership may change and, uh, and direction may change. And I guess, I guess maybe the hopeful thing is things move very slowly until they move very fast. So, so um, we may be in the, you know, the darkest hour before dawn. How's that for reaching for some optimism? You are clinging as much optimism from, from this jaws of uh, overwhelming existential dread that the climate crisis uh, presents us as. as I did my best, Brian. I did my best. (laughs) And we appreciate that. And that's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment. Thank you, Imogen Rose-Smith. Thank you. And thank you, David Bank. Thanks to you both. And special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. This podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha, providing news and insights for those working to build an inclusive and prosperous future. Find us at impactalpha.com and on Twitter at impactalpha. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company Liquinet. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you in some sense of that word next time.